Thanks for listening to this week's sermon from Epicos Church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. For more information about Epicos, please visit epicos.org. Good morning. Let me tell you about my week. Uh, last Sunday, we also hosted the Super Bowl party over at Mayfair Road. It was a blast. Uh, I had to write this sermon this week, so I spent a lot of time in studying and preparation for the message I'm preaching to you right now. I'm in my final two weeks of my master's program in seminary, so I wa- I, I've woken up every morning. At f- Thank you. I, too, am very excited for it to be over. Um, I, I wake up every morning at 4 a.m. to do homework. I've been doing that for the past a couple months. I'm getting it done. Um, I have a 15-page paper due in one of the classes. I have four book reports. One of them is on a book I haven't read yet. And uh, I have a big final, all that stuff. There's, there's a light at the end of that tunnel. Uh, uh, back in November, Heritage Christian School out in New Berlin asked me to come speak at what they call Spiritual Enrichment Week. And so this week was Spiritual Enrichment Week. And what that entailed is that almost every day this past week, I spoke to their high schoolers, just preached the Bible to them. It was awesome. And then I am on a task force with a couple other staff members to kind of work on some projects as we are preparing for the future senior pastor who's going to come uh, eventually later this year. And then um, I, too, shoveled my house on Thursday with the snowpocalypse that happened, and this week was Valentine's Day, so I had to be a good husband. This week was the premiere of Ant-Man, so I had to be a good Marvel fan, and all of that was on top of my regular responsibilities as a campus pastor for Mayfair Road, and on top of that, I still haven't gotten over the news that Giannis likes Culver's more than Chick-fil-A. It's been distressing me, and I want to have a personal meeting with him to to convince him otherwise, you know? So when you ask the question, are you tired, obviously yes, I'm tired. But the question that might better serve us is, why are you tired? Why am I tired? Why are we tired? You can say, Frank, it's kind of obvious, your calendar is way too busy. You got too much stuff on there, and that's why you're tired. And sure, I would agree, I wish things on my calendar didn't land on each other the way they did. But what if I told you that my calendar is more of a symptom than the actual root to my tiredness. Because we live in a culture where busyness is a badge of honor, right? When you ask someone, how are you doing? They'll say, I'm so tired. Like, I'm so busy. I, I have so much stuff going on. Society encourages us to go, go, go. Have a main job, but have multiple side hustles to have some extra cash. Uh, start a new hobby, and maybe through there you'll have some supplemental income. And even if you don't do that, make sure you post often on social media to show everyone else that your life isn't boring, right? Make sure you post pictures to show that your kids are perfect, that your marriage is awesome, and that your life is interesting. Post your political commentary on every current event, because if you don't, your silence means you're liberal or conservative, whichever you think is the bad one, all right? Um, You have to watch all the shows that everyone is watching because everyone is watching them, and you have to have expert knowledge on every single thing happening in this world because you are afraid that if someone asks you a question about it, you don't want to seem ignorant. But why do we do this? Why do I do this? Like, like, I'm not sharing this to shame anyone. I'm a part of this too. We all do this unconsciously. It could be because we think we will find happiness if we are more educated, more wealthy, more informed, more whatever. But the point is that we are all running on a treadmill and we don't know why we're running. We just keep going. And even though we are, this running is making us tired, it is shaping us and forming us into something. Very simply, 
all of us are being formed. We are all being formed. Each of us in a society as a whole are being formed into something, and most likely, you don't even realize it. Our society as a whole doesn't realize it. Let me give you an example. 20 years ago, uh, my mom would often say, Frankie, don't believe everything you see or hear on TV. 20 years later, you and I are telling our parents, hey, don't believe everything you see or hear on Facebook, right? Like, 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 like this past 20 years, social media has changed everything. It has shaped us and molded us to something we couldn't dream of 20 years ago. Today, the primary way you communicate to one another and, and like interact with one another is probably through social media. 20 years ago, Facebook was just a school project for Mark Zuckerberg and Harvard. Today, it's the primary way you stay in contact with your aunt in Florida, all right? We think it's just a, a thing, a tool, one of many applications in our lives. But think about how it has changed the world in the past 20 years. How has it changed you? Whether it's social media, Conspiracy theories, cable news, political platforms, your family background, your religious tradition growing up, consumerism, your favorite hobby, even the music and podcasts that you listen to when you drive. We are all being shaped and formed by what we put the most attention on. But this formation, this shaping of who we are is not random. It's not like just evolution working out. What if I told you there were forces behind this? And what if I told you those forces are your enemies? Jesus says in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus promises us an abundant full life. But it feels like the thief is just stealing and killing everything. Right? It, this life feels exhausting and difficult. And the only thing that it's full and abundant of is grief and fear. But the reason why you're not experiencing the abundant life is because you have enemies actively trying to destroy your soul. And so my prayer is at the end of this message, you will know and take seriously the enemies of your soul. And by the end of this series, this special four-week series, uh, we hope to give you a tool that you can have to get closer to that abundant life Jesus promises, but also you can be a little less tired. So if you have your Bibles, open to Matthew chapter 4, and if you want to use the Bibles in the backseat pockets, you can turn to page 809, and it'll take you straight to Matthew 4. This is where Jesus, before he begins his earthly ministry, uh, fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, and then Satan shows up to tempt him. We're going to start in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Whenever we read the story of Jesus being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, this is how we often interpret it. Jesus is vulnerable because he's hungry. Uh, and because of that, he is more susceptible to the devil's temptations. But if Jesus was able to overcome those temptations while he was in his most vulnerable, we can too. And that is a very surface-level interpretation of what this passage is about. The, the, let, me, let me explain it this way. The Greek word for the word wilderness is the word eremos, which can be translated as desolate. And it basically means that Jesus went to a place to be alone. And that's not a bad thing. In fact, throughout the Gospels, this word eremos is going to show up multiple times Whenever Jesus gets alone to get away from the crowds before a miracle, there's oftentimes Jesus just gets alone to go be with the Father without distraction. 
And so these 40 days of fasting is not Jesus at his most vulnerable or his weakest. It's actually Jesus at his strongest. If anything, it is dumb for the devil to tempt Jesus when he's been alone without distractions for 40 days just constantly talking to his father. That was dumb on the devil for doing that. What we should be taking from this is that Jesus after spending a lot of alone time in prayer, was able to defeat all of the devil's schemes with God's holy word and by knowing his identity, who he was in the Father. Therefore, we should practice being alone with our heavenly Father to defeat the devil's schemes as well. But let's look at some of these temptations that the devil tries to give towards Jesus. Verse three, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones become loaves of bread. And, but, but he, Jesus, answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the devil is trying to convince Jesus to use his authority to turn stones into bread. Jesus is hungry. He might want some bread. And we know that Jesus turned water into wine and he took some, you know, a little Jewish kid's lunchable and fed thousands of people, right? We know that he's able to manipulate food to do all kinds of things. So turning a stone into bread is really easy. But the, the sinful temptation was for Jesus to possess something at the wrong time and in the wrong manner simply to alleviate his hunger. In the Gospels, every time Jesus does a miracle with food, notice that it's always, it's never to satisfy himself, and it's always to, 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 to serve other people. So Jesus quotes scripture saying that even while he is very hungry, there's more going on here than just trying to eat some food. Verse 5, the, the second temptation. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The devil's temptation here is for, for Jesus to create a huge scene at the temple. If you or I were to go to the top of the temple and jump off, we would die. But for Jesus, if he were to jump off, he, Satan uh, misquotes a passage from Psalms to try to, to, tell, to get Jesus to jump off the temple because if he were to jump off, angels would guide him down. And by doing so, it would cause a big scene. It, sorry. <clears throat> Everybody would be like, yo, what is this? Why are there angels doing all this? They have questions. They, it's causing a big scene, and they may follow Jesus because of that. This is important for us to read because the devil has a doctorate level understanding of the Bible. And when you have someone who knows the Bible well but hates God, you have someone that can manipulate and misuse the scriptures to deceive others. I'm going to say that again because it's very important. The, the devil has a doctorate understanding of the Bible. So when you have someone who knows the Bible but hates God, what you have is someone that can manipulate and misuse the scriptures to deceive you. And this is why you need to read the Bible and know it well so that you can sniff out when someone is manipulating it to deceive you. Jesus sniffed it out. He knew that this act would impress a bunch of people, but it would contradict God's plan of Jesus being the suffering servant who would lay down his life for his people. The third temptation, verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, 
Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus is the rightful king of the world. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, but the pathway to his kingship is through his death on the cross. And when Jesus was in the garden, right before he was crucified, it says he was literally sweating blood because of the anxiety of all that the cross would entail. And so Satan is offering Jesus a shortcut. Satan is saying, what if you get to be king without all the pain? But Jesus isn't budging. Our heavenly father has promised his son all authority over the entire world, but it comes after the resurrection, not by bowing to Satan. And so in this passage, we see the devil's strategy. He did this with Adam and Eve in the garden. He did this with Jesus, and he does this with you and me every single day of our lives. The devil's primary strategy is to ruin your life and make you tired by his lies. Satan is constantly lying to you. I like how John Mark Comer phrases it, and I want to use his definition for today's sermon. He says, the devil's primary strategy is his deceptive ideas that play to our disordered desires normalized in the sinful society. I'll say it again. The devil's primary strategy is his deceptive ideas that play to your disordered desires normalized in the sinful society. To put it more simply, the three enemies of your soul that's trying to ruin you is the devil, the flesh, and this world. The devil, the flesh, and this world. And when these three enemies of your soul have victory in your life, it causes you anxiety. It makes you afraid. It makes you spiritually lazy. It leads you to sin. And yes, it'll make you tired. It would be worth our time to take a deeper look at the devil, the flesh, and this world because we often misunderstand them and underestimate their power in our lives. So let's start with the devil. From the opening to the closing pages of the Bible, Satan is presented as an enemy of God, and therefore, he's an enemy of God's people. Our society sees Satan as a joke. The people will say he's just a poetic figure for all that's evil in the world, or they'll say Satan is, a, is, is made up. He, he simply uses a figure to convince people to go to religion. And if you think that, I understand why you think that. It's easy for us to understand or believe in a good God that's loving, but when you think about the idea of a devil figure, it sounds a little corny. But I want to encourage you. If Jesus takes the devil seriously, then you should too. Because Jesus takes the devil very, very seriously throughout the Gospels. Jesus said in John 8, about Satan, he said that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, and he is a liar and the father of lies. Have you noticed that the devil is, like, really popular right now in the news? Like, he's been brought up a lot. Sam Smith wore all red and had devil horns on his hat at the Grammys, and I saw it. it was, that, that, that performance was a bit blasphemous, but also super speak, spooky, right? Like, it was weird. Rihanna wore all red at the, at the halftime show at the Super Bowl, and people were saying, oh, it's demonic. It's like a pagan ritual on display. And then a couple years ago, you may have remembered the rapper Lil Nas X. He came out with a Satan shoe where it was like these Nikes that had, like, blood in it or something. And people say, this is how the devil works. He's trying to manipulate and deceive people, and you see it on the news, you see it at the award shows, you see it at football games. So listen, I agree. The devil is trying to manipulate you and deceive you. No question about that. And also, I believe a consistent diet of anything, music, TV, movies, whatever, that is super sensual and super worldly and that glorifies sin 
is not going to make you closer to Jesus. I think that's an easy thing to say. But whenever you see caricatures of the devil in popular culture, it's 100% always a marketing tool to stir up controversy and discussion because they know Christians get spooked out by the devil and it will lead to more clicks, more YouTube views, and more conversations on Twitter for weeks after whatever performance or thing that's on TV. But if we know the devil is deceptive and cunning, do you really think he's going to show up as the cartoon character we've made him to be? Like, you know nowhere in the Bible it says that the devil has horns or a tail or a pitchfork. And nowhere in the Bible does it say the devil is all red. And, and like, there's nothing inherently evil with the color red. You know what else is the color red? The blood of Jesus. The devil's schemes are less about horns and pitchforks. And the more insidious way the devil works is through the lies he tells you that you actually want to believe. In the garden... The devil persuaded Adam and Eve to fall by whispering one simple lie. What if God doesn't have your best intentions in mind? For Jesus, he asked a really simple question. Isn't there an easier path to becoming king? The devil's primary strategy is destroying God's good creation and your soul is by spreading deceptive lies that you actually want to believe. So a question you should be asking yourself, what are the lies or deceptive ideas the devil is trying to deceive you with? What are the lies that he's trying to get into your mind that you would believe to fall away from God? The devil isn't all-knowing, but he knows how to tempt all people. He knows people chase power, control, sex, wealth, and comfort, and therefore there are only so many ways for a person to get tempted, and Satan will gladly throw every single lie at your way to see if one of them sticks. So the devil is targeting you with his lies, but hear me, it's because you have an innate desire to believe them. And that leads to our second enemy of the soul, the Bible calls the flesh. Galatians chapter 5, 16 and 17 says, but I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So the flesh are the sinful characteristics inside of you that tie you to Adam in the garden. Uh, you might say, Frank, but I've been baptized, right? I'm a new creation. The old me is gone, the new me is here. What is this flesh that's fighting with the spirit? The flesh are the scars that remain that show the remnants of Adam's sin in all of us. This isn't Satan or demons trying to hold you down or make you sin. This is your embedded desires that want to fight against God's kingdom. This is the rebellion inside of you that's kicking and screaming against God's redeeming work in your life. The devil's primary strategy is his deceptive ideas, his lies, that play to your disordered desires, your flesh. So a question we should be asking ourselves is, are you aware of your own disordered desires that want to play to the devil's lies? Are you aware? Are you self-aware enough to know your own disordered desires? Disordered desires are not always like bad things you want. They can be. But most often, they are good things that we want that we turn into ultimate things. So let me give you a couple examples. If you're single and you desire to be married, that's not a bad desire. It's a good desire. And it, it becomes a disordered desire when you make that desire for marriage the ultimate thing in your life. So if you ever have thoughts or statements like, I am less valuable as a person because I am not married in my 30s or 40s, your desire has become disordered. Or, or, or if you say, if God does not provide me a spouse, 
then God isn't good. You've turned marriage that's a good thing and you've turned it into an ultimate thing and now it's a bad thing. So, so here is the lie the devil can do to play on that disordered desire. He will say, well, the reason why your relationships fail is because you refuse to sleep with them. And if you find a decent person you can see yourself marrying, does it really matter if you sleep with them if you're gonna end up marrying them anyways? That small lie latches onto your disordered desires and boom, the devil has now convinced you to give intimacy to someone who doesn't deserve it yet because they have not covenanted, they haven't made that promise, those vows to you in marriage. Let me give you another example. You are a man that wants to provide for your family. That's a good desire, that's a godly desire. But it becomes a disordered desire when you think your worth as a man is contingent to the amount of money that you make. Or, or you find the comfort and security money gives you as more trustworthy than God. Then you turn that good thing into a disordered thing. So the lie the devil could whisper to you is, it's okay if you miss your kid's soccer game or their recital. They're going to thank you when you pay for their college. Or the other lie is, you can miss another dinner with your wife this week. Uh, at least you're making enough money to provide the food that she eats, Right? Our disordered desires create the headspace for you to be vulnerable to the devil's lies. So your porn addiction comes from your disordered desires. Your unhealthy relationship with food comes from your disordered desires. The way you use sports, shopping, vacations, video games, and alcohol to escape your problems all come from the lies that have attached to your disordered desires. And here's the thing. All of this is reinforced by the third enemy of your soul. And that's the sinful world we live in. Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible uses the word world three ways throughout the scriptures. The first way is to describe the actual planet, the ball that's spinning that we're on right now. Uh, the second way the Bible talks about the, world, the word world is to describe all the people in it. So for God so loved the world, he's talking about all of humanity that's on the world. And the third way the Bible uses the word world is what we see right here in Ephesians 2. It's the systems and standards that oppose God's authority and values. It, the, the world is the system and standards that oppose God's authority and values. In Matthew 4, did you notice that in that third temptation, when Satan offered Jesus all the kingdoms of the world, that Jesus didn't like check him to see if he could actually do that? I think Jesus knew that Satan could actually offer all the kingdoms in the world. Jesus himself calls Satan the ruler of this world in John chapter 12. Jesus understands that there is an invisible system of beliefs and practices in our world that is in rebellion with God's kingdom and is governed by Satan himself. So let me give you a clear picture about a way the entire world was gaslit to believe it was okay to sin, and you, many of you did it too. Let me give you this example. In, in the year 2000, there was this metal band named Metallica. Anybody know who Metallica is? Okay, there was a band named Metallica, and they sued this company called Napster. Napster created this program where you could share music. It was right around the time where... Um, uh, CDs was a primary way you could listen to music, but MP3 started coming on the horizon, and the record labels were trying to figure out how do, what do we do with this new technology? Well, Napster created a way where you could put your music on your computer, and it would share it to anybody who would want to listen to it. Well, the problem is that's called stealing. 
That's called theft. And Metallica sued Napster for $10 million because that's what they believe how much money they lost because of all the music that was stolen from them on Napster. And so it was illegal. It was stealing. Everyone would agree that stealing is bad. You don't have to be a Christian. You could be an atheist, agnostic, Muslim, Buddhist, whatever. All, everybody knows that stealing is bad. If I steal your car, that's bad. If I steal your purse, that's bad. If I steal your phone, that's bad. But can you steal music? How can you steal a sound? That's the nonsense we were telling ourselves in 2000 to justify downloading stuff on Napster and LimeWire. But when the courts heard this case, they ju the judge ruled in favor of Metallica because it was clearly theft. But what was interesting is the court of public opinion did not support it. They hated Metallica because of it. The world believed that it was wrong for Metallica to try to get compensation for all the money that they missed out on because people stole their music. Millions of people believed stealing was okay. Some of you did it too. You had a whole stack of burnt CDs that you got illegally from Napster. And when I was 13, on my mom's Dell's desktop computer, I was doing it too. As a society, we thought stealing was acceptable. The world is where people decide what is right and wrong, separate from God and his world, and, and, and his word. So if the devil's primary strategy is his deceptive ideas that play to your disordered desires that are normalized in a sinful society, when we think of that woman who has a disordered desire regarding marriage and then hears the deceptive lie that she should give her body over to earn the man's commitment in, in marriage, she is engulfed in a society that normalizes carefree sex with no consequences and sees how, and the world sees any form of chastity as just weird and archaic. How is she going to combat this? Or, or the man who had the disordered desire regarding his wealth, when the lie that says ignore your family and just keep working, he's surrounded in a culture that's constantly reminding him of how much money he doesn't have and how he needs to get more. How could this man not work 70 hours a week and neglect his family? This plays out in all kinds of ways. <clears throat> we live in a world that defines tolerance as total acceptance of any and all disordered desires that you may have. We also see compassion, kindness, and self-control thrown out the window when it comes to your political affiliations. To be uncharitable and mean and rude and crass towards someone who disagrees with your political view is not only expected of you, but it's celebrated and required if you want to be seen as loyal to your political party. The world we breathe in every day normalizes sinful behavior. So if you're looking for someone to support your disordered desire or for someone to co-sign the belief of the lies the devil's giving you, you don't have to go that far. And, if I, and I want to be honest with you, this is what's terrifying about this. Because this is so deceptive, so insidious, so evil, all of us are being duped by it. So I need to tell you, this is why we wrote the sermon. These three enemies are no joke. They have been enslaving humanity for thousands of years effectively. And you cannot defeat this enemy. The devil knows the Bible better than you. The devil knows your disordered desires better than you know your own desires. And the devil has governed this world longer than you have existed. So do not misinterpret these enemies and do not underestimate them. When you discount them and ignore them, they reign victorious in your life because these enemies are shaping you and forming you away from Jesus. 
but they're also shaping you and forming you into the image of this world. You were not strong enough to win this fight. My job today was to tell you the problem. I think I did it. The problem is that the devil, your flesh, and this world conspire together to destroy your soul, and this unholy trinity is really good at it. And this is why your soul is tired. You are feeling fatigued because you are in a battle you did not even enlist in. Next week, you're going to hear about the solution. And the the two weeks after that, you're going to hear about the gift God has given you to give your tired soul rest. But without stealing next week's sermon, can I tell you a little bit of good news? All right. We cannot defeat this enemy, but Jesus did. Jesus disarms the power of the devil at the cross. Jesus lived a perfect life and called us to be a new creation and gave us his Holy Spirit so that we could kill the flesh in our life every single day. And Jesus overcame this world and called us to be salt and light in a world that hates God. I'm gonna say this again, but be a bit more aggressive, okay? Jesus entered our world and he punched the devil, the devil in his mouth so it would shut up his lies that are trying to deceive us. The devil is not equal to Jesus. The devil is a scrawny rat compared to the mighty lion that Jesus is. Jesus overpowers our disordered desires by giving us the Holy Spirit to order the chaos of our flesh. And he overcomes this sinful world by ushering in his new kingdom with his kingdom ethics into this lawless world that we live in. Jesus, on the cross, purchased our justification with his blood. Justification means we have been made right before God. And therefore, when God sees you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your disordered desires. He doesn't see the lies that you've believed in or the acceptance of sinful society. What Jesus sees, what God sees, is the perfect life of Jesus credited to your account. And in that, he promises to sanctify you. Sanctification is the process of you being formed into the image of Jesus. Because as God sanctifies you, you begin to think and act more like Jesus every day. So here's what's important. I need you to get this. I'm going to put it on the screen. Because if you get this, you'll understand the next four weeks. Sanctification is the work where God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uses your habits patterns, and practices in your life to form you into the image of Jesus. I'm going to say that again. Sanctification is the work where God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, uses our habits, patterns, and practices in this life to form you into the image of Jesus. These three enemies are ugly, they're ruthless, they're nasty, and they're tough. But Jesus is tougher And he who is in me is greater than he who is in the world. And you and I get to fight these enemies from a position of victory because Jesus has already won. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You do not have to be afraid of these three enemies because if you have Jesus, you have the king of kings who has stomped the head of the serpent named the devil. And Jesus is here to fight your battles, but more importantly, Jesus is here to fight with you in this battle. So listen to me. I implore you, I beg you, I all the words in the thesaurus really, 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 really want you to be here the next couple weeks. Because in that, you're going to hear how these enemies can be subdued in your life. More importantly, how God has provided a way to give you rest. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, you're good to us. You're gracious to us. You're kind to us. Lord, we live in a, we live in a sinful world that, does, that wants nothing to do with you. And so we're in a sinful society that, that is surrounded, engulfed with people and ideas and things that are in rebellion to you. On top of that, Lord, we have these, this flesh that is embedded desires that are distorted and dysfunctional that want to rebel against you. Our natural bent is to push and butt up against your will for our lives and your work in our lives. And Lord, we have the enemy, the devil, lurking around, constantly trying to, to lure us away from you, to keep us busy, keep us distracted, keep us drunk on anything and everything else as long as it's not in worship to you, Lord. But Lord, we praise you that though we have these three enemies, you have conquered it all. By your death on the cross, by your resurrection from the grave, the, the world, the flesh, and the devil is nothing compared to your strength and your power. So Lord, when it comes to the devil, give us discernment to know when he's lying to us. Lord, when it comes to our flesh, give us godly self-awareness to know when our desires are becoming distorted. And when it comes to this world, Lord, give us eyes to see all the ways that this world has been corrupted by sin. And let us live and stand and fight in the victory that the battle has already been won. And we look forward to the day when there's no more devil, no more flesh, and no more world. And we just get to be in the presence with you forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.